Hello. Hello everybody, I'm Patrice and I'm Rachel and we're on Language Nerds to Earth episode 64 today. Uh, welcome. <laughs> what are we going to talk about today, Rachel? Today we are talking about we are doing a travel episode about the seven natural wonders of the world. Mm. So I'm pretty excited because some of them I was more familiar with than others. And that's probably the case for most people. Yeah. So there are a lot of lists out there about um, world heritage sites and wonders of the world and like the new wonders of the world and the ancient wonders of the world. And we were like, okay, let's let's focus on wonders of the world. And then it turned out there were thousands of them. So we did find a list. I think it's the list of the seven wonders of the natural wonders of the world, mm-hmm. right? Seven natural wonders of the world. Mm-hmm. So these are the official ones uh, to put on your bucket list if you're a nature lover. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. Um, Would you classify yourself as a nature lover? Yes, although, well, there are a couple of these that I... Well, at least one that I wouldn't do. But I think the rest I would like to do. Oh, I might be obvious which one I don't want to do. But <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out. Mm-hmm. But before we find out where Rachel doesn't want to go because she hates nature, let's talk about language news. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Uh, so Patrice found a really interesting article and why don't you Mm -hmm. tell us what it's about well rachel have you ever wanted to learn acadian it's not super high on my list to be honest (laughs) all right well to each his own so somebody really wants to learn acadian actually no so there's this old tablet in acadian and it is the oldest semitic language so semitic languages include aramaic hebrew syriac basically South Arabian alphabets. So it's really, really old. People spoke Akkadian in the ancient Mesopotamian empires between 4,500 and 2,400 years ago. So there's um, a clay tablet on which Akkadian has been preserved. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the uh, tablet's been through some stuff over the last 4,000 years, 5,000 years at least. And um, it's had a lot of damage. But happily, thanks to modern technology, experts at Ariel University in the Israeli Heritage Department are training artificial intelligence to read Akkadian script so that they can find out what was on the tablets. I don't know if they use artificial intelligence for the Code of Hammurabi, but I think the Code of Hammurabi is a good like comparison mm-hmm. because... Um, it was just these rules that somebody wanted to put into a tablet so they would become more concrete. Yeah. It was standards for commercial interactions and fines to puni- fines for punishments. So um, it's just like a snapshot of history. And I think they don't really know what what's on these tablets, but it would be really interesting like, <laughs> to find out what you write down today that... You you find so important that you feel like you need to write down. 
Right. And then somebody finds it like 5,000 years later and is like, wow, this ancient script. I'm going to teach a machine to read it so that I can find out what this person was trying to tell me. And then it turns out it's like, you get four chickens for one box of leather. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, <gasps> like a receipt or something. like. Yeah, or... Yeah, I, it's probably a terrible example, but you know what I'm trying to say. I do. So I thought it was really interesting what it said that it's one of the quirks of cuneiform is that it's a that is polyvalent. So each sign has more than one possible meaning. Yeah, which I guess that's why they really need to use artificial intelligence because they haven't been able to crack it until now. Right. It's so contextual. Mm-hmm. I've seen like um, a really good explanation for. Uh, what, like, an archaeologist actually goes through. You know how in movies like Indiana Jones, Mm -hmm. you have an archaeologist, like, reading, like, very specific things that the wall says? Yeah. And on the meme, he's, what an archaeologist actually goes through. And it's like, okay, so it says something about either killing or gold. Uh, I'm not sure what what it is, but either way, there's probably a curse involved (laughs) If this happens, if you push the right button, or it might be if you push the left button, it just depends on the context, (laughs) right? Like it's, it's actually like translating ancient script is so contextual and um, really not as straightforward as you would think. And translating any script is like that. But it's especially hard, I think, for archaeologists who can't like go ask somebody who speaks the language if the language doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, definitely. And no one has spoken it for, like, thousands of years. Yeah. And we talked about language isolates a few episodes ago. It reminds me kind of of that. It's like, what happens when you have a language that's dying out and you're trying to revive it, and then, like, you've got two grandmas who speak it from their childhood and then, like, didn't use it as an adult, and they're your authorities on... (laughs) Like, developing a dictionary. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, Well, super interesting idea. And I could see how Mm -hmm. this could be used in maybe other scripts as well. So yeah, we'll have to see how this pans out. Definitely useful. So let's talk about the seven natural wonders of the world. So first of all, well, we're going to cover each of them briefly. uh, Maybe some tips on when to visit or how to visit. Uh, mm-hmm. maybe some history. Yeah. It sort of depends on the place. But do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'm going to start us off with the Northern Lights. So everybody's heard of the Northern Lights. It's a really interesting phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? And speaking of history, it actually has a lot of history when it comes to legends. So when it came to the Norse legends, um, they brought in the Norse mythology, right? So Norse legends suggest that the ribbons of green light served as an archway to Valhalla, mm-hmm. which is the heaven in Norse mythology. In China, there are some places where the latitude gets high enough to see the northern mm-hmm. lights, and um, they actually associated dragons with the light shows. The legend is that the lights are a battle between good and evil dragons. Oh, wow. um, People can see them in the UK, and so in Britain, in the British Isles, they 
were not associated with positivity. Mm. They actually blazed red just a few weeks before the French Revolution. So that's really interesting. I didn't know that you would be able to see it, but I guess from like northern British Isles, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I wasn't super aware of that either, but yeah. Yeah. And then in Japanese culture, uh, the legends include fertility. So um, a child conceived during a northern lights display would be blessed with good looks, intellect, and a good fortune. So it's really interesting. The northern lights are actually uh, oval-shaped. They go around the northern hemisphere in the form of an oval, and they change over time. So they occur in an oval-shaped band around both poles, and you can see them from space in the shape of an oval. And they're actually, like, going into the science a little bit, they're solar winds. They're just solar winds in the shape of an oval, and they, they're only visible at nighttime, but they also occur during mm-hmm. the day. So, but they're really high above the atmosphere. They're about 90 to 130 kilometers. That's probably something like 50 to 70 um, miles above ground level. Oh, wow. And so they've always been admired, right? And the first photo of the Northern Lights was actually taken 125 years ago by a German physicist, Otto Rudolf Martin Brendel. So, when is the best time to visit the Northern yes. Lights? If you want to go to Iceland, the best time is between August and April. And in Norway, you should probably go between late September and late March. Um, but you're not going to see them every night, so it's a good idea to stay at least a few days. I've heard people have spent like a few months in like northern Norway or Sweden trying to see Whoa. the Northern Lights That's in the winter. Crazy. I might be wrong, but the sounds very cold. Yeah. Uh, where else can you see them? So you mentioned uh, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, China. I mean, I imagine Russia, right? I would guess. Canada, I would guess. Yes. So Sweden, Finland, Norway, Russia, Canada, Alaska, and Southern Greenland. Mm-hmm. Interesting, Southern Greenland. So maybe if you go too far up, then you're not going to be able to see them. Yeah. But some of the photos of the Northern Lights are like, doesn't look real somebody made that up yeah i was reading that there's also apparently a southern lights which has a different name yeah yeah it's this is the northern one it's on both poles so what are the southern lights uh the name of it but yeah aurora australis uh yeah but i wonder where you can see those i read well where was it tasmania maybe or tanzania so South Georgia Island, Stewart Island, the Falkland Islands. Mm. Oh, Argentina, Antarctica. Okay. Well, I really want to see this one. That sounds amazing. And I would love yeah. to yeah, go that far north, I guess, in the, in the colder months when they happen. Sounds very interesting. I don't know if, I, if it's worth it for me to be that cold. I think I would have to go in a bubble. I like this <laughs> Just little... like a small portable sauna. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds amazing. Uh, something to experience. You like sure. those little what? Those little like like glass dome type things that they rent. I'm sure they're so expensive, yeah. but they look really amazing. Just like out in the middle of Yeah, the well. <laughs> exactly. That'd be incredible. Yeah. All right. All right, so the next one that we're going to talk about is the Grand Canyon. Uh, that's from our home country, so, and I think that one's maybe one of the 
well, one of the best known of them mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. It's not actually the biggest canyon in the world, but it is one of the biggest. It's 1.8 kilometers deep or a mile, about a mile deep. And mm-hmm. I, wait, I have it in both units. 446 kilometers long or 215 miles long. Um, mm-hmm. The average distance across it is only about 10 miles. But because like you can't really get across it that easily, it takes like five hours to drive from one side to the other um and there are like quite a few different ways that you can visit there like you can do driving they have helicopters i think they're still happening you can do a hike so if you hike across the canyon it's sort of rim to rim so that means like you go down and then you go across and then you go up and it's about 21 miles Um, with a vertical descent and then a vertical climb of like a mile. So that seems like a lot. Also, I know they do like mule trips. That's possible. Um, That's fun. I think I would be interested in doing the hike, but it definitely takes some preparation and it's like an overnight thing most of the time. Mm -hmm. So it's also really important for... A lot of tribes, it's been inhabited since the last ice age. Wow. Yeah. And I had no idea. They've got, they've found so many like artifacts and tools and um, like artwork or like little figurines um, all throughout hmm. the layers of stone. Um, wow. But the, la- the people, well, the ancestral Pueblo people used to live there and now the Havasupai people live there um, and I think they also operate a lot of the management of the park and things like that and about 5 million people visit there every year which is crazy to think about yeah that's incredible um, I've actually never been there but I would like to go yeah my mom just camped it earlier this year. Good job, mom. Wow. She like she went down and camped and back up the next day. I think I think that's what she told me she did. Um, I know I went as a kid and she's probably going to tell me I'm getting these details wrong, but uh, at the time we saw California condors. Do you know that bird? Yeah. Yeah, it was endangered at the time. There were, like, 27 California condors, and we saw, like, almost 20 of them. They're these enormous birds. Um, We were rafting. Is rafting Rafting something you can do in the canyon? Okay. Okay, yeah. So that's those are the details I remember (laughs) that might be wrong about going to the Grand Canyon. (laughs) But, yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredible. And, And what I remember as a kid is not that overwhelming but as an adult like i look at the photos and i'm like this place looks amazing yeah yeah really gorgeous i did i mean maybe i haven't been to the grand canyon as an adult but i did go to go to the grand canyon of china so if anybody ever wants to come to the china grand canyon there is no rafting and there are no helicopters and there's no uh there's a hike that is it takes about 45 minutes so okay so not it's so grand quite the same but (laughs) 
One thing that I didn't mention that I thought was so interesting, I'll just say really fast, is that yeah. it contains some of the oldest exposed rock on Earth. Wow. And some of the cross-sections of the Earth's crust go back nearly 2 billion years. So that's, like, unfathomable to me. But, yeah, like, just crazy. That's incredible. Okay, well, Grand Canyon, definitely on my adult bucket list to check out again. I think I'm more prone to go to the Grand Canyon temperature-wise than I would be to see the northern northern lights. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. But this next one, let me just say I've never heard of it, and oh my god, it is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. Um, I don't know how I missed it in my education. But um, you said you've heard of it, Parikutin. I've only heard of it, well, a little bit, but I don't know that, I didn't know that much about it. So for those of you who don't know, Paricutin is a volcano in Mexico, but it's called a cone volcano. And this kind of volcano, because it's on the ring of fire, it's temporary. So when in the ring, on, in, on the ring of fire, um, you have these like temporary volcanoes that just kind of appear out of nowhere they erupt and then uh and then it's over and they go somewhere else and they erupt so this farmer is in this field one day minding his own business with his corn i think it was corn yeah it was cornfields and suddenly there's a big crack in his cornfield he's like okay that's weird i think there were some earthquakes and then he, the earthquakes got stronger and there was a crack. And it was like over a few, over the period of a few days. And then, so the crack happened. And then, like, something, the ground started to rise. And he's like, okay, this is getting weird. And then it grew hundreds of meters. Oh, my God. And this poor farmer, <laughs> he's like, what in the world is happening to my cornfield? And it grew... It grew hundreds of meters within the first year. It is now about three kilometers above sea level. Oh, my God. Which is, like, more than two miles. Yeah, it's about two miles. 1.6. Yeah, almost two miles. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It erupted for nine years straight before it finally fell silent in 1952. So this is, even within recent history, I have no idea how I have never seen... I've never heard of this, probably because of my American ethnocentric education. <laughs> but um, anyway, the best way to see, to see Paricutin is by taking a round-trip hike to the top of the volcano. Apparently, it's not an easy hike, but you can also visit it on horseback. But that takes you past the lava fields, um, the village homes that were buried, a church near the summit. And there's no danger of, as far as I understand... There's no danger of it erupting again. Mm-hmm. It's just like the site of a once active volcano that just literally rose to three kilometers out of the ground within a few years. Oh, so it started in 1943 right. and and finally like chilled out <laughs> in 1952. Yeah, it's so wild. And from what I understand, it's in like, Western Mexico. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where the fault is, right? Like, west, right. like along the 
coast of the Pacific. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the hike says it's 19 kilometers, which yeah, it's not that long, but yeah, it should be really. But it's interesting. I, I guess you're if you're going up that high. True enough. It's probably not easy. Yeah. Yeah. But I. I bet this would be really interesting to see because it's so recent. Right. It's, it's like, I don't know. It's serious. Like, I'm having trouble. When I learned about it, I just had trouble wrapping my mind around it. First, like, the horror that this farmer must have gone yeah. through. And, by the way, I wonder if anybody followed up on that farmer. <laughs> yeah. Like, what happened to him? Yeah. All right. Well, super interesting. Uh, so we've mm-hmm. got two so far that are in, well, I guess two that are in North America and then Aurora mm-hmm. Borealis, which is in like the very Northern Hemisphere. Um, our mm-hmm. next one is Victoria Falls. So we are traveling to mm-hmm. Africa. This, I mean, the pictures of it look amazing. Uh, it lies mm-hmm. between Zimbabwe and Zambia. So the river, the Zambezi River is the border between the two countries. So you can access it from either country, uh, it sounds like. And it's really, I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, but it just sort of looks like a hole in the earth with water pouring into it. I know, I'm looking at photos right now, and it just looks like the end of the earth, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so interestingly, it's not the tallest or the widest waterfall. The tallest would be Angel Falls, right? And the widest, I'm guessing, is Niagara. It's very hard to Possibly. believe, but okay. <laughs> it looks like it should be both of them. But interestingly, <laughs> if you talk about like the amount of water falling at one moment, it has like the largest sheet, single sheet of flowing water. <laughs> so like really? area, okay. I guess, um, height by width, anywhere in the world. Um and you can actually see the spray yeah. from miles away, which is quite wow. amazing. Um, it's called uh, Mosi Oatunya in the Losi language, which means smoke that thunders, which I think is a really sort of poetic name. Yeah. But, yeah, it sounds like you can see it from helicopter, though that's, you know... Uh, That'd be pretty cool. expensive. And apparently people go swimming at the top, yes. which, like, they're not worried which about. Which looks crazy. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that there are quite a few activities you can do in the park. It's part of a national park in Zimbabwe, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. And the best time to visit is after the rainy season when it's gotten all the rain and it's, like, super thunderous. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I was just wondering about that. Like, what is the source? So it's rain. Because it's rain from the Zambezi River, right? Right. Um, and where does the Zambezi... I mean, the Zambezi River is fed by water. And then where does that water come from? I, I think, I'm thinking a lot about this because I've been seeing, like, in China, I've visited a few glaciers. Mm-hmm. And the main thing that people talk about around the glaciers is how much smaller they are than they used to be. Right. And these glaciers are like major feeders for really important rivers in China Mm -hmm. that feed like ecosystems. And like, I wonder about Victoria Falls, like, is it as big as it used to be? Um, Is it bigger than it used to be because of more rain or um, Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't know if it's fed by a glacier. I know there are some glaciers in Africa, but it's really interesting to think about like uh, these water systems and right. and actually a lot of beautiful, amazing wonders of the world, how much they've changed um, just in the last 20 years, thanks to us. Right, like how affected each of these is by climate change. Yeah, exactly. I, I didn't see anything about it, but yeah. Yeah be interesting um yeah by the way like just the size of it so it has more than 500 cube sorry 500 million cubic meters of water per minute and it's almost two kilometers wide and almost 100 meters like high wow so i would love to see it amazing yeah 100 meters is really tall Mm -hmm. it's 300 feet like a track no it's like a, a part of a track so right <sighs> oh patrice <laughs> well speaking of climate change um the next one we have on our list is the great barrier reef mm-hmm. which has been under a lot of stress and danger thanks to climate change yes. but just some interesting stuff about it it's not one single organism, so that's like a common misconception. It's actually home to about 3,000 individual reefs and more than 400 coral species. And it actually makes up 10% of the world's coral reefs. It's 2,600 kilometers long, which is about 1,600 miles. So in the descriptions I read of 2,600 kilometers, they said, oh, that's like combining... Victoria and Tanzania together, which tells me nothing because I am an American with terrible knowledge of geography, especially in this part of the world. So I translated it to 1,600 miles, which is about from Miami to New Hampshire. Oh, my gosh. Like if you were to travel around the coast. That, yeah, that, that, that's a lot more wowing than, compar- than com- combining yeah. uh, Victoria and... <laughs> yeah, that's amazing that's one thing you can see it from space and it's actually the location of another world heritage site so it meets another world heritage site which is daintree forest and that's the oldest surviving rainforest in the world wow yeah if you like snorkeling or scuba diving it's good for that because the maximum depth is 35 meters and I think the first PADI, yeah, it's not, it's not bad. The first like level of PADI certification is down to 15 meters in depth. So, um, that's also like, once you get down past 10 meters, it's not great visibility anyway. So it's, it's good for snorkelers and scuba divers alike. Home to over 5,000 marine species. Um, including Africa has their big five. Um, I think it's like lion i i'm gonna i'm gonna buckle it but they have their big five land animals and the um great barrier reef has their great eight aquatic animals so they've got clownfish giant clams manta rays the maori rasa which i don't know what that is so you should look that up uh potato cods also sounds like potato so i also need to find out what that is shirtles Shirtles, sharks, turtles, and whales. So, I was like, what are shirtles? 
<laughs> so those um, are like what the most important species those are like the important or prolific or something else <laughs> i think those are like the the species that maybe it's known for oh, okay. and i imagine they're endangered and protected because that's how the big five are in africa mm-hmm. so um they also have six species of sea turtles and there's this prehistoric animal called a nautilus mm-hmm. have you heard of it no well sort of sounds familiar but explain it's like it's a mollusk but it has tentacles like a squid mm-hmm. and it's i think it's really big okay where it gets really big anyway it's it sounds really cool to visit and should it, maybe it's one of those places that you need to go visit if you want to if you want you mean visit if you now. want to before it disappears <laughs> right yeah are there i, I was going to ask are there any sort of restrictions that have been put in place or what would those be i I think there must be. I know Australia is really um, careful with their ecosystems. And like I was wondering about if they have laws about sunscreen or like how many people can visit per like at a time. I don't know what they would be. Yeah. No, I, I don't. It looks like you can swim there and they just have like rules. So d- dispose of rubbish. Um, be careful if you're anchoring your boat mm-hmm. fish responsibly. Don't feed the fish. Take care when diving and snorkeling. There, sh- there have to be laws about sunscreen, though, right? Like, I would guess. I, I mean, I really hope so. There are in like Hawaii. Anyway, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, like tip in case you didn't know. Be careful about the sunscreen you wear when you are uh, snorkeling, because it can harm the aquatic life yeah there are like specific sunscreens that don't have the particular chemical or they're usually called like reef safe um Mm. like if you're gonna be in the ocean then you should use that yeah definitely so if you're gonna go um summer months is the best Mm -hmm. time but be careful because they're on a different hemisphere (laughs) from most of us so i thought you're gonna summer is not in june and july i thought you were gonna say like in the summer, that's when the great whites come out. So, be oh, <laughs> what if you were to plan an entire trip without figuring out if you if it's the right time, and you're like, it's summer, I gotta go to Australia, and then you got there and it was winter. I mean, it would be extremely frustrating. I would, well, I would not imagine that that's very possible. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to do like the bare minimum amount of research. <laughs> That's true. I I don't know. I just feel like people need to be warned. Um, so, I mean, it's still Australia, and of course, it would probably be great in any case. But just a little little tip for those who don't know, because okay, my fourth graders didn't know wow. that they're on a different season. So, anyway, we move on. Sounds very good. yes, definitely. Uh, so the next one I'm going to talk about is Mount Everest. Um, also, I'm sure one of the most famous ones. I think everyone knows what Mount Everest is. But just as a brief overview, it's uh, it's always hard for me to define. But technically, it's the tallest mountain on land. Yes. Well, technically in Hawaii, there is a taller mountain, but part of it is in the water. 
Okay. That's the difference. But it's in the Himalayas um, between Nepal and Tibet, and it's part of China. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, the border is across the top. Right. So you can access it from, from both, both sides. sides. So it's yeah. 8,849 meters, which is like over 29,000 feet for our um, imperial friends. And it's considered the tallest point on Earth. Yeah. Uh, however, it's also not considered the most difficult mountain to climb, but right. it's, I mean, right. obviously still very difficult. Mostly what I want to talk about, I guess, is the sort of visiting, like what, how people climb it. The first person credited with climbing Mount Everest is Sir Edmund Hillary. One thing that I found really interesting was about Sherpas, which normally you hear the word Sherpa and you're like, oh, it's a person who climbs a mountain. But it's actually the indigenous group uh, that lives mm-hmm. in the region. It's a caste. Yeah. Okay. Like there's like Brahmin and Sherpas. And so, and there are a bunch of castes, but it's a caste of people. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. Um, well, they do other things as well, but... Um, mm-hmm. They, I think that word has become synonymous with like mountain guide, which is not, in fact, the only meaning of the word. Yeah. But they are also super important. Having a guide is necessary, an experienced guide, preferably. Yeah. It's not as deadly as the second tallest mountain, which is K2, or the second tallest mountain. Right. I think in the world also, but which that one is like one in five people who try to, who get to the summit die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's scary. Which Everest is a lot less than that. But they did have an accident back in 2019 where 11 people died in one mm-hmm. month. Was that the month of the um, the blizzard? Uh, it was in like May, which is not typically the oh. time that I think is for climbing. But yeah, 11 people died. I think it was an avalanche. Or, mm. no, it was actually, sorry, um, I'm remembering now. The It said, like, nine of them had inexperienced guides and were inexperienced climbers. Mm. So that has, that inspired or pushed the government to set, like, new standards, which were really necessary okay. because just let anybody who has sort of money could, like, pay the $11,000 or whatever it is to go up there without that much experience but you have to have like a health certificate you have to have like training in um high altitudes and you have to well i have your guide and whatnot and most people do it with oxygen but it's become so crowded in the last Mm -hmm. years that it's become the fatality rate has actually gone up. People wait for hours to, yeah. like, for like in line. That's, it's actually, like, goofy when you see the pictures. That's the crazy thing, yeah. And, like, during that time, they're just standing in the snow, like, with running out of oxygen. And that is really dangerous, obviously. And there are dead bodies, like, yeah. marking different places along the trail, too. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, in the last 20 years, the number of people above base camp almost doubled. So that tells you wow. how yeah how crazy it has gotten. And the other big problem with that, well, 
of course, there's the traffic jams, which are dangerous, but also just the amount of trash and pollution on, yeah. at the top and along the way has become ridiculous. And I read a lot about actually human waste and how it's such a huge problem with wow. so like because above base camp like there is nothing um so people just go there and then that is like a huge part of the waterway that comes down the mountain so the water at the bottom and all the communities around is really bad and dangerous with fecal wow. matter and that's very disgusting yeah so yeah the it's disgusting yeah one of the other things like i think it was a NGO that was um, wanting to do sort of like a human waste powered, well, I can't remember what exactly, but using it in a, in a way. And so then it doesn't end up just like in the waterways. And the Nepali government, I think also idea. started a program that like, you have to pay like a $4,000 deposit or something before you can climb. Wow. And then if you come back with like the average amount of trash, which I think is like eight kilos or 18 pounds, if you come back with that amount of trash, then you get your deposit back. So that's like to help encourage people oh. to not leave their trash there. That's really smart. Yeah. Actually, I have a friend when we went to Nepal, the guy who took us on our hike it was a five day hike in the foothills of the Himalayas, not near Everest. It was near Annapurna. Mm -hmm. Um, his name was Rewati. He's actually in our intro. He says, Namaste. <laughs> and uh, he's a Brahmin. We were told he was a sh like he was going to be our Sherpa when we paid for our trip on this hike. And then we met him and he was like, technically, I'm not a Sherpa. I'm a Brahmin, and which is like a priest level cast. And we were like, oh, mm. sorry. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll link to his website. It's called Magic Mountain Treks. And he really knows what he's doing. So it's funny. You you don't have to go to the top, right? Yeah. It's I think it's actually a 10-day hike to Everest Base Camp and back. And then you spend a night at Everest Base Camp. But you a lot of, like, actually going above Base Camp is extremely expensive. Yeah. Like, I think people paid, like, $30,000, right, for one trip? Something? Like, it's not I mean, I've read 10000 or 11000 Probably, okay. yeah. Probably you have to spend more on, like, equipment and stuff. I don't know the details. Right. Yeah. They have to spend a lot of money on uh, the trip and equipment. And then when you get there, you have to often spend a lot of time at Everest Base Camp waiting for the right conditions. Yeah. And, so, like, to acclimate as well, no? Like, you have to get there mm -hmm. and, like, become used yeah. to the altitude. And Yes. I was reading um, training, which was so fascinating. Um, it said you should start training specifically for Everest like 9 to 12 months in advance and have the time to commit to training 5 to 6 days per week. Be comfortable hiking 1,500 vertical feet per hour with a 20-pound pack. And wow. like this just sounds insane. And I don't even know how you... Like imagine most people that don't live like near a huge mountain. You would have to move for like <laughs> somewhere for 9 to 12 months. And I have to say like... It's not like Appalachia, right? <laughs> the rolling hills of Appalachia. Like, just the foothills of the Himalayas are exhausting to go up and down because they're, they're much newer mountains than the Appalachian Mountains. So they're like, it feels like you're either going at a 45% incline or a 45% decline, but never anything 
and it never anything that that's easier than yeah. that it's always harder i mean it's not even so it's really hard on your yeah, body it's not even comparable like to the alps or something that's way more mountainous than, than the Appalachians. Yeah. but yeah it's incredible but um getting to uh i know that we're over time but um i will say that we we saw it from tibet when we went we did like a a hike across the Tibetan plateau to Everest Base Camp and getting to the Everest Base Camp on the China side is much easier. In fact, it's like you can drive there. You can drive to base camp. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's it's a plateau, so it wasn't really a hike. It was more of a walk, like a very long walk. There were some ridges that we went up and down that we didn't really have to, but uh, you can see it from like we didn't drive we wanted the hike mm-hmm. and i think i might be wrong but i think it's easier to access it from the china side uh, it's just <laughs> impossible to get into china so if that's your dream maybe start training for the nepali side <laughs> because china's never going to open up yeah uh, so if you were wondering this is the one that i'm not that interested in doing at least like i wouldn't want to go to the summit no. going near would be obviously amazing, but I'm not interested in training. Yeah. And like doing that level of climbing. <laughs> yeah. Pass, pass on that. Yeah. Same. Like I'm happy to see it. I saw it. I checked that one off the list. I saw it from the China side and I never have to go to the top. I'd love to see it from the Nepali side. And by, by the way, they're both super, super different. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's something that's interesting. Okay, cool. So we have just, well, Mount Everest. Just one left. Yeah. We, um, uh, the harbor of Rio. So I didn't know that this was considered a natural wonder of the world, but it makes sense. So the Bay of Rio is this huge bay with actually, you know, Ipanema and Copacabana. They're really famous beaches and communities in Brazil, and they are along this bay. And you've seen the statues of Christ the Redeemer watching over the bay, mm-hmm. standing with his arms out. So that that's where this is. It was created over thousands of years of erosion, and the rise and fall of the Atlantic just ate away at the land and dragged it into the water. So it's called Guanabara by the Tamoyo people, who were the original inhabitants of the area. The translation is arm of the mm-hmm. sea, um, but another translation in the Tupi language is bosom of the sea, but you get it, some body part of the mm-hmm. sea. And there are 130 islands that rise up from the waters, and the beaches are obviously gorgeous. These like white sand, crystal water beaches. But the water is heavily polluted with mm. garbage and toxic waste. So I don't know if swimming there is the best plan. Lovely. I know Brazil is going through some political things yeah. currently over the last few decades. So I think they're struggling with trash. Yeah. But when Charles Darwin went to Rio de Janeiro. He fell in love with its beauty, the bay. Mm. And uh, he actually conducted experiments on the soil there and was one of the brains behind the erosion theory of the bay's creation. So that's kind of where we get the idea of tectonic plates Mm. are the reason for the sheer cliffs. There's something called Sugarloaf Mountain, which is this big rock just sticking out of the bay. it's like 600 million years old, and you can take a cable car or hike and a hike to the top. I think you have to take a cable oh, okay. car at some point. But, yeah, it sounds really gorgeous. I think we have to do a vote on which one, like, 
was the first one we would go to. But this is like, this sounds great to me. I would love to go to Brazil. Yeah. So, well, let's, among ourselves, what is your top one? Well, let's uh, talk about when to go and then we should do, then we should do that. So you can go anytime. So uh, it's generally good all year round. The temperature gets pretty high in the summer, but pretty mild in the winter. So just go to Brazil because it's really gorgeous. Okay. Now, where do we want to go out of all these places? What's your top two places, My top two. Hmm. I think I would have to say the Northern Lights is probably Mm -hmm. my top. And Victoria Falls. Mm -hmm. You? I mean, the Northern Lights sounds incredible. And I think it's something that I have to do once in my life. But because of the cold... And because of the weirdness, like, favoring it, I would definitely say that Paricutin would be my number one. Okay. <sighs> and and I love sea turtles, so I think I would want to see the Great Barrier Reef. Also sounds, yeah, amazing and something that needs yeah. to be done quickly. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But all of them sound, like, really incredible. Yep. And even though I've, I've been to the... Grand Canyon, and I've seen uh, Everest in person, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, like you can always find new ways to experience the the ones that you might have already seen before too. Because yeah, like yeah, especially since I saw the Grand Canyon as a kid. Yeah, that one is is more difficult to remember when you're when you visit places as a kid. Exactly. Well. Okay, so I think it's time for our challenge zone. Challenge zone. Okay, so Patrice had a really fun idea. This week we are doing sort of a where did this word come from etymology type quiz on English words. So I found a quiz. Mm. I haven't looked at it, so we are going to do it together. It is multiple choice, so Mm. that might help (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm hoping for better success this week on my challenge. <laughs> so this is from Babbel, which is a language learning website. Um, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about the quiz, though. Yeah, the quiz seems interesting. Okay, so I'll read the first question. Yeah. Where does the word tragedy originally come from? Is it Irish, Greek, Italian, or German? So I'm going to guess Greek. What do you think, Rachel? I'm going to guess Greek as well. That ah, we got correct. it. Yay. <laughs> so tragedy comes unsurprisingly from the Greek. Think of plays. What is a bit weird, though, is that it comes from tragoidia, which roughly means goat song. <laughs> wow. I love that. That's super cool. Okay, I'll read the next one. Where does the word whiskey, as in the alcohol, come from? German. Gaelic, Greek, or Russian? Based solely on what I know about whiskey, I would guess Gaelic. I was going to say the same. All right, let's do it. Yes. Yep, we got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the word whiskey comes from the classical Gaelic phrase, beata, which I'm sure I'm butchering, <laughs> meaning the water of life. Yeah. Clearly, the Irish thought very highly of the drink. That is interesting. You know, I think some in some cases in history, like, Drinking alcohol was more sanitary than drinking yeah. water, like when the rivers got polluted. Yeah. So, absolutely, and it's fair. <laughs> okay, the next one. 
Which language gave us the word salary? Latin, Old English, French, or Greek? I'm guessing. So, uh -huh. as a Spanish speaker, it's pretty easy for you to figure this out. But um, I know this one. I've heard the. I've heard this one before. Well, I'm guessing Latin. Yes, Latin. It comes from the Latin salarium, which literally meant a soldier's allowance for the purchase of salt. Oh, yeah, I have heard this before. Yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Salarium. I heard they paid soldiers in salt mm -hmm. at some point. Yeah. Hmm. Sal. Yeah, um, salt. I don't know. Like, it makes sense to me. I, I need a lot of salt on my food. And... Um, there's nothing wrong with salting your food. People. And back in the day, so. it was not such an easy thing to acquire or such a, I mean, like, exactly. Yeah, it's more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Okay. Which language gives us the name of those cute little symbols we put in texts known as emoji? I think this one, maybe it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dutch, Hindi, Sanskrit, or Japanese? One, two, three. Okay. Japanese. Wow. Japanese. <laughs> Yes. The word emoji combines the Japanese e picture and moji letter. It's also probably the newest word in this quiz. The word robot first appeared in a play that was originally written in which language? Russian, Ooh. Czech, Greek, or Hebrew? I have no idea. Uh, do you have a guess? I'm going to guess Russian. Russian. Robot. Okay. No! No! It's Czech. Czech. Ah! The Czech science fiction okay. writer Karel Kapik wrote a play called R.U.R. that introduced the word robot to the world. He took the word from the old church Slavonic word robota, which meant servitude. What? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, in Chinese, the word for robot is jitiren. Which means machine person. <laughs> I wonder what it is in Icelandic. Like they don't use words from other languages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good question. Icelandic listeners, let us know. <laughs> um, the last one. What language does the word shampoo come from? So Hindi, French, Polynesian, or Latin? These are getting more interesting mm -hmm. as we go on. I'm thinking maybe French. Shampoo. I'm thinking shampoo. Hindi. Okay. Let's see. Woo! You were right. Hmm. This word comes from the Hindi champo, shampo, which originally meant to massage. It first appears in English in 1762, but it took a century to refer to washing hair. Interesting. Huh. I like that. Uh, let's finish it. I think this is a really fun okay. quiz. <laughs> Where does... Avocado, the preferred toast spread of, millennial, of millennials everywhere, originally come from. Spanish, Portuguese, Nahuatl, or Italian? I'm hmm. guessing Nahuatl. Oh, yeah, probably. I'll put Spanish just for a variety. I'm wrong, you're right. <laughs> well, avocado is related to the Spanish aguacate. The word originally comes from Nahuatl, an indigenous language of Central America. Okay, there you go. Uh, in chess, the phrase checkmate can be traced back to the French échecmat. This was a Frenchification of the earlier phrase shamat, which comes from which language? German, Arabic, Japanese, or Greek? 
It's not. I don't think it's German. I want to say Ar- I'm Arabic. I'm pretty sure it's Arabic because it's an Arabic game. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. You're right. So the game of chess is very old, possibly dating back to the third century CE. The word Shah meant the king. The word Mata allegedly meant died, though one etymologist says it actually comes from a Persian word meaning is helpless. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah, I like that. I'm learning so many really cool things from this quiz. (laughs) Good find. So which of the following words was not borrowed from French? Rectangle, debris, wine, or orange? Hmm. I think rectangle. I think wine. Hmm. But I'm... You might be right about that. I'm not sure. Very important thing for me to know. <laughs> I don't know about you, but... I mean, the word is similar, but I don't know if it's borrowed, right? Like, mm-hmm. I- I'm going to say wine. I think germ- it's German. Wine is vine in German, so so you're right. Good job. <laughs> well, wine is associated with the French. It comes from a proto-Germanic word. This question is tricky yeah. because the French word wine, le vin... Looks similar. That's because both words go back to the same Proto-Indo-European root. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, Which of the following W words is not a word that originated in English or one of its direct ancestors? Warrior, watch, weather, or wife? Hmm. That's tricky. (laughs) It is tricky. I think they're all pretty old words. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just going to guess warrior. I think warrior. What about you? That's what I was leaning towards. Okay, let's see. Uh-huh. Ah. Okay. Warrior comes from the old French. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. <laughs> yeah, maybe. The old North French. Okay. Last one. Don't trust every etymology you read. Sometimes they're wrong, especially when people claim the common words were originally acronyms. Which of the following words is actually an acronym? Swag stands for mm. stuff we all get. Golf stands for gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. News stands for northeast, west, south. Or snafu stands for a situation normal, all fucked up. Swag. I think it's swag. I think it's snafu. Okay, I'm going to guess swag. Oh, you're right, it's snafu. <laughs> the three false etymologies likely all started as jokes, but are sometimes reported as fact. Snafu, though, was actually used by the U.S. military in World War II. Mm, that was a really fun quiz. Yeah. I loved it. Let's do something like yeah, that again. that was cool. Well, yeah. if you have any suggestions for our challenge zone, let us know. And mm-hmm. I hope you enjoyed the dive into the seven natural wonders of the world. Yes, I certainly enjoyed it. And next week we're going to be talking about language. So looking forward to it. And... Thanks for listening. Thanks. See you next time. Bye. Bye.